0: I want to transport you back in time to August 386 AD in Milan. And there's a young worldly professor of rhetoric called Augustine, who um, you might have heard of as a famous Christian leader, but at that stage he was not a Christian leader. He was not a Christian. And he was sitting in the front garden of his friend uh, Olympias' house, And he could hear over the fence a little kid singing a song in the neighbouring house. And the song went something like this. Take up and read, take up and read. That was the lyrics. I don't know what the melody was, I just made that up. So he followed the instructions of the song. He said, okay, I'll take up and read. And he looked down at his friend's legs and there was a scroll next to it. And so he picked up the scroll and he just opened it randomly And uh, that scroll was the letter of Paul to the Romans. And he just randomly started reading, and he read this. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in promiscuity and licentiousness, not in rivalry and jealousy, but put on the Lord, Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. And Augustine had a sudden feeling come upon him a a change that occurred and he wrote in his famous autobiography the confessions he wrote this no further would i read nor did i need to at once at the end of this sentence a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away augustine went on to be a great christian leader Uh, so significant that there was an order of monks named after him. So I want you to go forward another 1,200 years to 1515 into an actual Augustinian monk uh, whose name was Martin Luther, who began lecturing to his students in the university town of Wittenberg in Germany on the letter of the Romans. He went on with his lectures until September every day. And as he prepared more and more lectures his own understanding changed. He wrote, I greatly desired to understand Paul's letter to the Romans and nothing barred the way save one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I understood it to signify that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I thought about this until I took hold of the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies by faith, at which I felt myself to be born again and to have passed through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new significance, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, Now it became for me indescribably sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became for me a gateway to heaven, said Luther. About 200 years later in England, uh, the Anglican minister John Wesley went in his words, very unwillingly to, to, a, to a society in Alder Street, uh, Street in London, Sorry, where someone was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, he, he said, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Moved forward another 200 years now into Switzerland. It was the end of World War I. It was crazy times in Europe at this stage. And the brilliant Swiss theologian Karl Barth was looking around for a theology that might help him to make sense of the messed up world around him. And he said, I sat under an apple tree and began to apply myself to the Book of Romans, with all the resources that were available to me at the time. I'd already learned in my confirmation instructions, because he was, you know, a good Lutheran, he'd been through the confirmation classes, he'd learned that this book was of crucial importance. I began to read it through, as I'd never read it before. I read and read and wrote and wrote, and the result was his really famous commentary on the Book of Romans, the first edition published in 1919. He said, it fell like a bombshell on the playground of the theologians. See, Paul's letter to the Romans is one of the most influential books in Christian literature. Uh, It's a proclamation of Christian freedom. And over and over again, it's been the cause of the renewal of the church, a contributor, at least, to the renewal of the church. And spread throughout this year and next Um, we will get to the end of um, Romans. Uh, In the next five weeks, we'll get to the end of Romans 4. They'll have a break, do something else, come back to Romans later in the year. And my guess is that it will challenge us. It might even offend some of us. It'll hopefully stir our hearts, as it did with Augustine, Luther, Wesley and Bart. And this morning, what I want to do is give a brief background to the book, talk about what what it's about, and what this passage that we just had read is telling us. And, and, and finish by just say thinking a little bit about what Paul is saying about not being ashamed of the gospel. Well, first of all, this letter to the Romans is actually written very much like a Greco-Roman letter. In the style of writing of, of a letter. We have different letter writing styles. I don't write lots of letters myself. Um, but... Joe's dad, in fact, he does. He's a letter writer. He writes the family Christmas letter. Um, where he, I don't know if we've had one for a few years, but you know the, the style where it talks about all well, the things going on in the family. He travels a lot as well, and he writes these prolific emails. Um, and we always know when we get a, a, a letter or an email from Joe's dad that there's a lot of detail, so much detail. Sometimes it's hard to know what he's actually doing. Um, for example, it'll say something like this. "'Today I arrived at the seaside town of Walberswick. "'The bus trip was quite pleasant with lots of beautiful scenery. "'For lunch on the way, I had a sandwich with salad, "'which I brought from a cafe. "'It cost five pounds. "'The coffee cost four pounds. "'I spilled some of the sandwich on my jumper "'and had nothing to clean it up. "'A nice young couple lent me a tissue. "'Their names were Gerald and Lisa. "'I got into a long conversation with them, "'and we have become friends.' I told them I was an Anglican, and it turns out Lisa's uncle, Richard, is an Anglican minister, but her and her husband are Baptist. but that's okay. You know, there's a lot of detail. I made that one up, but that's the kind of thing. And you, you get to the end of it and you go, what, so what actually happened? You know? But anyway, Paul, Paul writes a bit like that at the end, at the start and the end. There's kind of this detail that he gets into, right? Especially if you go to chapter 16, there's just names and a whole lot of people and things that he wants to say. And so, in a sense, what we're supposed to get from that is that this is personal. He's writing this. It's not just an essay. This is written to people, and there's a heart there, and he cares, and he's got exciting stuff to say. He talks about Phoebe, his friend. You know, there's, there's all these kind of indications that he really is talking to friends, or at least people that he cares about. But the main body of this, sti- of this letter is actually in a philosophical style. It's called a persuasive discourse. And the Greek philosophers used this style to um, strengthen believers and convert outsiders. Um, They used logic arguments to prove an idea wrong. They used examples to demonstrate a point. They made personal appeals. Um, This was really made popular by Aristotle, in fact. So he's writing in this philosophical style. And he's writing this letter just before he visited Jerusalem as well, for the last time where he was going to deliver in person a a collection of money that he'd taken up from the Gentile churches. And the Jerusalem church was in financial trouble, and the Christians there were very poor, and he hoped that this gift would be a powerful witness, a demonstration of unity between the non-Jewish Christians and the Jewish Christians, the Jews and the Gentiles. He preached... And he'd exercised his leadership as an apostle all across the eastern Mediterranean. And now this ministry was coming to a, an end. And his next pl- plan was to actually bring the gospel on to Spain. He wanted to go via Rome and then on to Spain so they might use the Roman church as a base. But it we we, we, we doesn't never yet get to Spain. Now, Paul, Paul probably wrote this letter in Corinth or... A place called um, Century, perhaps during the winter of 56 or 57. So this is during the period of the Emperor Nero, and Nero was a bit of a basket case. He ends up killing his brother, ends up killing his mother. He's under the influence of different um, political advisers that were some not so good for him. Um, he divorced his wife. His leadership became more and more erratic. But um, this was just before he started um, persecuting the Christians. Because in around 64 AD, there was the great fire of Rome, of course. And uh, it was either an accident or was it was intentional by, on Nero's behalf. But either way, he started blaming the Christians for the fire after that. So this letter has come just before the Christians are experiencing the persecution. Now, what is this letter about? What, what is it about? Uh, Michael Bird, who's one of the lecturers at Ridley College, he's written, a, just recently finished a, a book about this, about Romans, and he writes this. Romans is a word of exhortation, a masterpiece of missional theology. It's culturally savvy apologetics, Christological exegesis, pastoral care, theological exposition, and artful rhetoric. If you don't know what all those words mean, doesn't matter. All designed to win over the audience to Paul's gospel. To support his mission in Spain, to draw Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome closer to- together, to strengthen them in the faith despite the perils of Roman culture, and to encourage his audience to identify with the apostle to the Gentiles as he goes to Jerusalem. This letter is Paul explaining the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and he goes into this great theological depth. It's like he digs down, and digs down, and, and, and goes down, as far as he can. He explores how the gospel creates a new community of Jews and Gentiles. God's bringing them together um, and they're united in Jesus Christ. And he makes about five big points about the gospel. First of all, he says um, it reveals how God in his righteousness is saving us from our sins. He says that even in the passage that we've just read in verse 16. He says that it's the power of God for salvation. Secondly, he says about the gospel that it shows its ability to bring um, people into moral transformation. So the gospel brings change in people's lives. Thirdly, the gospel should make Christians um, distinctive from the Judaism of the Pharisees. So there's going to be a big difference between that kind of Pharisaical Judaism. But on the other hand, this is his fourth point, there's a continuation between the gospel and the ancient Um, original faith of Israel. And lastly, um, the gospel is not um, this new idea that's come out of left field, but that it conforms to what the Old Testament said would happen. So um, he says it in in, um, the second verse of our passage, um, it is the gospel that he or God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So it's not come out of nowhere this gospel message has come out of the, uh, the scriptures, which we now call the Old Testament. So God is creating a new community out of Jews and Gentiles, a community who will praise him. And the prophets promised that Israel would be released from captivity and restored. And this message, this letter is saying, this is happening now. This is God's salvation, which is for both Jews and Gentiles. It's for everyone and for Jewish Christians, this got, took a bit of getting used to. God is, God is drawing the Gentiles into our, into our community now. Um, his grace is extending further than us. He's making us into one people. It doesn't matter who you are, either are a Jew or a Gentile, the most important Jewish family, or you're from a, a pagan Gentile community, which is filled, your life is filled with corruption and and sexual deviancy, it doesn't matter who you are, the only way to enter this new community, says Paul in the letter of Romans, is one way you can enter, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now Paul wanted to be in Rome, but he couldn't. So this detailed letter that he's sending to them is making sure that the Christians there understood this gospel message really well. He'd made it clear that he's still on the side of the Jews. So he's not become this anti-Jewish kind of Christian leader. He's also on the side of the Gentiles. There's, it's not about creating um, separation between cultures. He's is in fact trying to bring them together. And Paul wants the church in Rome to live this out. He wants them to be gospel in their character. He wants to be, them to be transformed so so that this message can then go on and extend to the rest of the world. So I've talked a lot about this concept of the the gospel, and we get actually in the first 17 verses um, an explanation of what the gospel is. You can see it in verses 3 and 4. This is kind of a creed. We say creeds at Mary Creek, often. I think we might... Are we saying one today? Probably not today. This is the one day no, we're not saying one when I get to talk about it. But um, the, the creed is in verses 3 and 4. We, probably, we think it's probably an early Christian creed that Paul's reminding them of. Um, he says this. It's about the Gospel, which is regarding his son. So the Gospel is about God's son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. So he's at a historical character in the line of david and this is important because the jew jewish christians knew that um, the messiah was promised to be from the line of david and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of god in power so he's anointed the king of kings by the holy spirit by his resurrection from the dead this is a son of god in the line of david a person who has risen from the dead jesus christ our lord that's his name they put a name to this person He is our Lord, the one who we worship and adore. Martin Luther summarized it this way. The gospel is a story about Christ, God's and David's son, who died and was raised and is established as Lord. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And in verses 8 to 15, Paul tells the Christians how much he loves them. He thanks God through Jesus Christ because your faith is being reported all over the world. He says in verse eight, Paul's a great encourager. I just want to say a pause on this moment point and say never underestimate the power of encouragement. There's a lot of um, discouragement in being um, a Christian minister. Uh, there's some high, ridiculous percentage—60 percent or something—of of, of Anglican ministers um, in Australia have mental health problems. It's a terrible st- statistic. Um, and anyone going into the ordination process like Benjamin, I'm sorry, sorry to bring that to you, Benjamin. Um, but one of the reasons is because there's so much discouragement. So there's, there's discouragement in, in, in the kind of sense of, um, you know, you want your church to go really well and, and people are just not that interested or, um, you know, um, there can be infighting within the church there can be people who are really difficult in the congregation who just get you down and always complaining and always, you know. Um, and then there's the kind of the, the moral pressure to live a, 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 a kind of a holy life and feeling like you're always a failure. And um, then there's the time, stre- you know, if, if there's low finances in the church. Um, you, you, you stretch and a lot of people in ministry are stretched a million direction, directions and that can be hard on the family. And then you've got the outside culture as well. Um, and then you've got the denomination that you're part of that sort of loads on you, all these kind of expectations as well. And I know it sounds like I'm I'm a whinge. I actually love being a minister, but I'm saying that there's a lot of discouragement. And one of the things that um, keeps me going is encouragement. And I tell you what, I get it all the time. I get it not just from you guys, but I get it when I often meet other Christians who know about Mary Creek and they say things like, hearing really good things about Mary Creek or my, my niece goes to your church and she absolutely loves it or, um, you know, um, I've heard that um, your, your congregation's growing and stuff like that. And it's not just them trying to make me feel good. I think people are actually trying to encourage me and that does have an impact. Um, and I tell you what, if you want to do one good thing as a Christian, encourage other Christians. And I encourage other Christians who are in leadership. Know that your words are powerful. And don't just say, you know, middle class kind of nice words. Be Mean it, you know, and and pray. So that's what Paul says here. You know, I've been praying for you. Um, He says, God is my witness how often I remember you in my prayers in verse 9. You could even set a goal for yourself. I'm going to say, say, "I'm going to try and encourage three Christians this week because I know they need it, um, and see if you can do it. And, and it, don't just wait for yourself to randomly bump into someone, send a text message or a letter. <laughs> um, and you, you, you never know how much a difference you might make in someone's life. So Paul does this. To the church in Rome and then in verses 11 to 15 he says he can't wait to get to Rome so that he can do some face-to-face ministry with them and then he gets to this famous verse in verse 16 where he says this for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew then to the Gentile there was constant pressure on the this new Christian um, breakaway Jewish sect called the the Christ followers, or the the way, or the Christians, as we call them now, pressure to um, change their teaching, to conform to the surrounding culture. Um, This has always been the way for the church, the pressure to to conform to the surrounding culture. Um, But it was crucial for Paul to stick to the message because he knew that it was the power of God. So his logic is this. The gospel about Jesus Christ is not just information, but it's power. It's actually power. It's what causes the church to grow. It's what causes people's lives to change. So if we, ch- if we tinker with that, it's no longer powerful. And he's, he's very concerned because he wants to see this church grow and he's an apostle. You know, that's his job. He had experienced on the road to Damascus his own life change where he went from being a cr- Christian killer to being a church leader, an apostle. There's always been pressure to to change the Christian message from the surrounding culture, and there've always been Christians, sadly, who've gone ahead and done it. Um, and it, it, when you study church history, you what you one of the things you do is you study um, people constantly trying to change the Christian message and people just stopping them. Um, I, I remember do, doing a whole subject called um, the history of Christian medieval heresies. It was just heresy after heresy. It's kind of cool. Um, for example, in the second century, Christi- there was a Christian theologian uh, called Mar- uh, Marcion who was ashamed of the gospel. He's a bit embarrassed because it didn't really live up, in his mind, to the kind of level of Greek philosophy, Greek or Roman philosophy. So he actually took out all the Jewish bits of, of, of the Christian story and um, just changed it into a kind of a philosophy, um, but. That wasn't the gospel. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when science is really taking off, um, you had the rise of Darwinism and, and, you know, uh, especially in in Europe, it was the real, you know, really having an impact on the church. And there were a lot of church leaders saying, we as the church have got to keep up with science. And so there was a bunch that were starting, of theologians starting to question the humanity of Jesus or the divinity of Jesus or taking the supernatural stuff out of Christianity. Um, they wanted to turn it into a system of ethics. Uh, po- in the days of postmodernism, which we've had since the late 1960s, um, there have been some uh, postmodern Christian theologians who've been embarrassed about how unpopular it is to be a Christian academic. You're a Christian and an academic. How can you be a Christian and an academic? Uh, influenced by critical theory and and popular thought in the humanities. These theologians have started to pick and choose bits of Christianity and leave other bits out, uh, focusing on modern progressive political ideas like tolerance and diversity. Uh, but this is not the gospel either, this kind of cherry-picked Christianity. Churches that go down this path of trying to produce a kind of a, a new kind of Christianity that conforms to the world around them, they lose the gospel power, something changes and the churches shrink. They've become a, a weak social club. In Melbourne, in our Anglican church, we do have a, a group um, of, of churches and Anglican ministers which you would call liberal, uh, liberal Catholic, and um, they, I, I think in some ways some of them are ashamed of the gospel. They, they're ashamed in the sense that they... they You can tell by looking at their Twitter feed. All they talk about is... um criticising other, you know, um, Christians all the time and, and, and promoting the latest kind of uh, f- political fad, um, that, that, you know, they, they, that happily conform more into any, the life of any other person going to Peter Monty's at North Victoria, you know, like, there's no difference. And so this is not the kind of church Mary Creek wants to be. We can't be like that. We didn't plant this church... So that we can just fit in and be accepted by the inner north secular postmodern culture. We planted this church so that lives can be changed. We planted this church so that the clear light of the Spirit of God could flood people's hearts and all the darkness of doubt vanish away, like it did with Augustine. We planted this church so that people can be born again and pass through open doors into paradise like Luther said. We plan this church so that people can have assurance of their sins, that they've been forgiven, um, like Wesley experienced. We plan this church so that we could bring transformation to the community like a bomb hitting uh, um, the, the, te- the city and, and seeing people just have a new perspective on the world and on themselves, like Karl Barth did. As we go through Romans, it's going to be like that. There's got, we're going to feel conflict with our surrounding culture. We're going to hear little bombs go off. We're going to, have, perhaps for some of us, have our hearts changed. We're going to feel ourselves in tension. And if there are corrections to be made in our thinking, then so be it. But I invite you to be soaked in this life-giving gospel. I invite you to come with open hearts. I invite you to respond to this letter in the only way that Paul wants you to respond, which is to have faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray for that. Lord God, thank you so much for this letter and uh, thank you that it is still challenging this day. Um, um, Thank you that we have it and are able to read it and have um, got the time to go through it and grapple with it. We pray that as we feel ourselves coming into conflict with different things in our culture, that we will work hard at trusting in you Amen.